From the Cairo Radio Newsroom in Seattle, I'm Dave Ross, and these are the Ross Files. Still so many questions about coronavirus and the response to it, and I think Dr. Keith Jerome is well-positioned to answer a few of them. He is a professor and head of virology at the University of Washington's Department of Laboratory Medicine. So you're right on the front lines of this. And the the first thing is uh, you now have permission to conduct your own testing? We do. We got permission to begin testing last Saturday. And fortunately, we'd been preparing, actually, since the beginning of January in case this became a problem here. So with the news coming in Saturday that we could test, we had everything set up, and we got our first specimens in for actual clinical testing Monday morning. Well, why the delay? It's since you've been preparing for this for a long time. The delay from Saturday to Monday? Well, just the delay in, in testing. From what I keep hearing, it would have been better for us to start testing much earlier than we did. It would have been. And we were advocating for testing before that. Um, we were... Um, Restricted from testing, testing was held by the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, Mm -hmm. and they wanted all the testing to happen there in the early parts of the outbreak here. I think looking back, the consensus will be that was probably not a good decision. What was the reason? I've I've heard that. I mean, what was the reason for that? um, Well, typically, if you remember back, do you remember the Theranos thing like years ago? It was the company that was kind of said they could get a drop of blood and you'll be able to test. They were faking their results. yeah, Yeah, exactly. And and unfortunately, it's always the bad actors that that lead to extra regulations, extra scrutiny. And so there was, there's been a lot of concern about ensuring the accuracy of tests and making sure that labs are reputable and these sorts of things. And so what's happened over the last few years is the regulatory oversight has increased over laboratories. And in a lot of ways, that's great. It ensures that all laboratories have excellent results and that people can trust. But the flip side is that then when you suddenly have an emergency that comes out of nowhere, you've got laboratories with really smart people in them who can actually help, and they're held back. And it takes time for those those decisions to get made and for the realization from the point of view of the entire system yeah. to happen that this is an emergency. We need to relax that. We, you know, we need to call all hands on deck. Well, that at least I understand, because the the Theranos thing was a a huge scandal, and you can't afford to have inaccurate results being passed around, right? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So how do you balance that? And of course, generally, you know, nobody expected this. You know, three months ago, nobody really expected that this coronavirus would happen now. I think we've always known conceptually something like this can happen. Um, We've tried to be ready. We've built a big capacity here in Seattle for viral testing. Um, Typically, for the viruses that people get every day, there's all the regular ones we get that we don't, we've kind of gotten used to living with, and some of them are bad. Um, so, we have a great capacity here, one of the absolute top labs in the country at University of Washington Medicine, but nobody expected this huge global, probably what's an actual pandemic now. Yeah. So, what made this rocket to the top of the charts, given that the number of people who've died from this, while, you know, tragic, it always is, is a tiny fraction of the number of people dying from flu every year. It is, and that that's a, a case or a statement that I was actually pointing out to people a month ago. Yeah. Um, I think what we're seeing here, unfortunately, Dave, is really that we're in the early days of this. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't seem that way. We've been hearing about it a for a long time, but this is 
probably going to get worse before it gets better. Really, still. Yeah. Hmm. And I think it's important for people to understand that and to do the things that the social distancing and the hand washing and, you know, you and I didn't shake hands when I came in. And all these things are ways that we can all contribute to this. I act every day as if I'm infected. Mm -hmm. As far as I can tell, I'm healthy now. I'm protecting myself, obviously, by washing my hands and, and, and the social distancing. But I'm also trying to protect others. If, if it turns out that I do have this, I don't want to pass it to other people. And I think everybody can contribute in that way. Now, is this intrinsically worse than the flu viruses that we're used to? I mean, I understand that there's no vaccine, so that's, that makes it dangerous. But, I mean, in terms of the symptoms that you've seen and the case studies that you've read, are the effects of this virus worse than what we see from people who get the flu? So I think there's two things about this virus that's worse. First of all, it really seems to be more infectious than the flu. Mm-hmm. That, that easier to spread? Have. It's easier to spread, easier to catch. We're trying to understand the biology behind that. And, of course, the research typically doesn't happen over days. It would happen over weeks. So we're all scrambling to understand that. The second thing is nobody has any immunity to this right now. Yeah. In flu... Lots of people have gotten a flu shot, even if it's not perfect. It helps. We had flu last year. Maybe that helps a little bit. And then just honestly, what we're seeing is that the fatality rate of infections is substantially higher than, than the rate. There's of a huge rate. debate going on about that. How, how do you go about calculating the fatality rate? Well, you know, unfortunately, right now it's being done mainly by looking at the number of deaths and comparing that to the total number of confirmed infections. Is that a legitimate way to do it? It probably overestimates the rate. What we don't understand is how many people have the infection and just haven't gotten into the healthcare system. Um, But I will say that you're probably talking about a couple fold. You see numbers as high as two or three percent come out in, in certain places. That's probably an overestimation, but. For the seasonal flu, it might be one-tenth of one percent or even less. And this isn't that low, no matter – that denominator is just not going to be that big. So it's going to be – it is going to be worse than the yeah, flu. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. So how does this disease uh, usually run its course? Is this like the flu where it tends to taper out in in April or May, or could it continue to last into the, the spring and That's summer? That's a big source of scientific debate and – prediction now. We don't know because we've never seen this virus. So we really don't know how this particular virus reacts. Now, this is a coronavirus. There are actually other coronaviruses. There's really four that typically infect people, and we've tested for them for years. And those cause the common cold, essentially. You you would never know you had a coronavirus um, other than you've you've got a cold and you just go on with with your life. so those do tend to have, we call it seasonality, just means exactly what you said, that in the summer, they tend to become less prevalent in the community. People are outside more. People aren't maybe in this close of quarters. It's just warmer. The virus doesn't like that quite as much. Hopefully, that's the case for this new coronavirus, this you know uh, novel coronavirus, but we really don't know. Um, one thing I'm trying to tell people is, we may see that drop-off, like you mentioned, as the weather gets warmer. And the worst thing we can do if that happens is to say, wow, we've beaten this, we're done. If you look back at similar historic events, um, even if you think about the 2009 swine flu, turned out to not be that serious, but it was a pandemic. It did go everywhere. There was a winter with it, and then a quiet summer, and then it came back the came following back. winter. 
1918. I'm hesitant to, to make comparisons to that, but we can learn a lot. The Spanish influenza, so-called from 1918, again, had those two seasons. And if we do get a break this summer, the best thing we can do is use that time to be prepared for next year, which could be just as bad. Now, based on everything I've heard, the vaccine would not be available for a year and a half. So we, we still wouldn't have it when it came back? That's very possible. If we think about the typical time frame of vaccines, a year and a half would be amazing to have an approved, proven vaccine manufactured in numbers that could actually be given to the populace at large. That said, this is being considered at the highest levels. You've seen Dr. Tony Fauci on the TV, the head of the National Institutes for Allergy and Infectious Disease, the kind of the top doctor. He's there with the president on TV. He said this is the highest priority thing we're doing right now, and they are in human trials of a vaccine. So that entire timeline is going to be accelerated. Whether it can be accelerated to have something ready in six to eight months may be impossible, but everybody's going to try their best. By the way, how do they pick the humans for those trials? <laughs> These are healthy people, right? They're, they have to test it first to make sure it doesn't yeah, so make the, you sick? Or? Typically, so I haven't been involved in those trials, so I can't speak to detail, but mm-hmm. I but conceptually, typically the first trials will be uh, people will volunteer for this out of altruism that they just want to help. Mm-hmm. Um, they typically will be healthy. They'll get the vaccine, and, and the, the, the scientists will be doing two things. First of all, most importantly, they'll look to make sure it's safe. So, um, you know, you can tolerate a little sore arm, the typical thing you might go with the vaccine, but there can't be any major problems with it. And then, then they'll look for the production of antibodies. Basically, there's laboratory tests by which you can look and make sure that it is actually generating an immune response like you want. Now, the last thing that needs to happen, and it is the hard thing, is we need to make sure that it's protective against the infection and not harmful. And that's where we typically get slowed down because there you need big groups of people who are just going to go out and, you know, by the luck of the draw, some in the control group who didn't mm-hmm. get the vaccines. There'll be a group that does and a group that doesn't. So, you know, some people will get infection and you'll compare those rates. Do they deliberately try to infect no, people? Then? No, no. The, I'm, I'm sure that that would be considered unethical, unethical yeah. in this situation. Um, so that won't happen. And then the other thing we have to be careful of is we have to make sure that the vaccine doesn't make things worse. Yeah. And that is always a little bit of a remote possibility, but that's why we can't just make the first vaccine and shoot it into everybody and then find out in 100 million people that we've actually done a bad thing. So it has to be in a smaller group of really very brave volunteers who who are willing to participate. Wow. That is altruistic. (laughs) Um, Okay. So that brings me to this other thing, treating the flu before you get a vaccine. There was a, a piece which was headlined, Treating Coronavirus, How Blood Plasma from Recovered Patients May Help. And apparently this is a therapy that's, that's been around for, for quite a while, where you find somebody who it turns out you know, didn't get small posture, didn't get whatever disease was going around, and you take some components from their blood and then give it to somebody who's got the disease, and, and that works or could work? It, it could potentially work, yeah. So there's a number of people who are looking at this right now and some trials at this, and everything's moving fast, as I said. But the idea, I mentioned that a vaccine, you'd get, you get a shot in your arm, and typically you try to make antibodies. So that's this uh, part of your immune system that will protect against the virus. Well, you can make that with a vaccine, but someone who's been infected has also made those, and that's how the body has fought off this infection. So now, right, they've got all these floating around in their blood. Maybe we can take those, purify them, and give them to someone else who needs it. Um, similar approaches, for example, were used against Ebola. 
a few years ago uh, in the parts of Africa that were really ravaged. Um, and it actually seemed to help. And there's co- there are companies that are trying to, to build this up and scale it up. Uh, You've got to find those people. There have to be enough of them. Of course, one infected person only has enough of these antibodies to help a couple of other people. So it, it's hard to scale this necessarily. Oh, so you it's can't not just, a manufacturing You can't process. just grow those in addition. To, uh, come you up can, with and there's other companies doing that. Again, that starts to get to be a bigger technical hurdle. Uh-huh. There's production issues. There's testing. There's, again, scaling that up. It's not trivial. People know how to do this. It can't happen in weeks, something that might happen in a matter of months. So it sounds like um, we've got to keep doing what we've been doing, even if it looks like things are getting better. Absolutely. Uh, people have certainly gotten the hand-washing message. They're certainly self-isolating based on, uh, based on just the traffic. Are there, are there other routes the virus can take that we, we haven't examined, other paths to infection that we haven't talked about enough? Well, of course, there's the— I mean, food, for example. Can it, can it ride on food if somebody— touches, you know, your, your lunch and hands it to you uh, and you touch the plate? <laughs> well, you get it there, those are great questions. We're trying to figure that out. I'll yeah. tell you what we think we know now, and everything is subject to change as we learn more. I think the major issue is people coughing, um, not necessarily always in your face, but coughing, touching their hands, touching their hands to their face, getting virus on surfaces. Mm. Um, non-porous surfaces, things that are hard, like a metal doorknob, are great places for the virus to live a long time. Mm-hmm. A um, long time meaning? Um, possibly a couple of days. A couple of days, yeah. really. So one thing I'm trying to get across to people is consider doorknobs and things. What about the hard surfaces in, in, in a bus or a you know? Yeah, train? the poles on buses, poles really? on the subway, light rail. You bet. And so the virus isn't going to infect you through your hands, mm-hmm. on the other hand. The virus gets on your hands, and then you help the virus by rubbing it into your eyes or touching your nose. So we do have a place to to in, intervene there. And if you've if you've been in those places, had to hold on to the rail for half an hour on the bus, and now you're off, that's a great time to Purell, for example. Mm-hmm. Get those hands clean. It really helps. Because I heard that they, the at least the, the case studies they did so far showed there wasn't much transmission through public transit. The, the worst case was in, the, like a, I think, a church community. In uh, South Korea? There was the church community. I think that was uh, maybe not typical. What people think of as, you know, church community like people might go to here. Mm-hmm. I think it was sort of a more intense uh, situation there, a little more crowding and, and interaction between people. Yeah, um, yeah. I think crowded situations are, are bad, frankly, getting people close, a lot of contact. The number of people you come in contact with today, the number of people that you're contacting the same things they are. Those those are those are situations where the the infection can spread, and the message I really want to get across to people is, it's almost not so much about, um, you know, oh it's kind of rare in this situation to for for the virus to spread this way. We need to be thinking about all the ways and try to minimize yeah. the risk at every place we can find it. Yeah, that's true. You're not going to, you, you can't just tell yourself, okay, statistically it didn't spread here, so I don't have to worry. You just you should basically be on your guard everywhere you go. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, but still, you don't recommend everybody wear a mask. No, first of all, we need masks for patients and healthcare providers. There are very special kind of tight-fitting masks that really can keep this virus out. They're very unpleasant to wear for very long. You get sweaty, and they're tight, and it's hard to breathe. Um, the typical mask, like you'd buy in a drugstore, really is pretty minimal protection. If you're coughing, it's a pretty good. Uh, thing to do then to protect others, other people, kind of right. keep 
the droplets from going very far. Uh, so that's a good thing. Um, and then physicians who are actually right up in people's faces or nurses who have to deal with them and have to be very brave and actually just help the people coughing or not, those folks, it, it will kind of help droplets from hitting hitting the, the face. But the average person walking around on the street just frankly doesn't need a mask. Okay. So it's close contact with people who obviously have the disease. It's uh, hard surfaces. What about, uh, what about clothing? What about, I know uh, people are worried about uh, touching money. Yeah, I've heard different things about money, so I can't really speak to that. Uh, the data that I've seen on clothing, it's sort of this more porous, irregular surface, and it doesn't seem like that's as good a place for the virus. Mm-hmm. So, you know, th- there's there's all sorts of things we're learning about this. I would worry uh, mostly, again, about frequently touched surfaces. Uh, again, you know, keyboards, doorknobs, um, you know, anything where groups of people tend to repetitively hit the, the button on the elevator. Uh, might as well think about doing that with your elbow if you can or, you know, purelling afterward. Um, yeah, it's a different world, and people need to start thinking differently. Does everybody just wear gloves? <laughs> uh, I think there's a, there are probably better uses of gloves right now as well, unfortunately. You know, it's one thing, Dave, that we're all thinking about is this response is not going to be done tomorrow. This is going to go on for weeks at best, and we're thinking – in our laboratory where we're doing the testing for this, you know, let's look at the supply chains. What happens a week from now, two weeks from now, a month from now? Will we still have all the reagents that we need? And, and, and we're really thinking ahead and planning and making sure that we do. Um, but if people are hoarding things like gloves or masks, that really makes it hard for the healthcare system to help mm-hmm. people like we need to. And so reagents are the chemicals you need to conduct the tests. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. So, so those chemicals... Um, we know on a typical week, we know almost exactly how much we go through, right? And suddenly now we're doing three times the testing that we ever were, four times the testing we ever were. Well, now we have to make sure, go through this list of here's 100 individual chemicals we need to do this test. And if one of them runs out, we're in big trouble, right? So Don't so, tell me they all come from China. Uh, <laughs> uh, some of the things we use do. Yeah. Um, We've identified a lot of alternative sources of, of supply. We have a lot of redundant sources right now, making sure that we're not going to run out of anything. Uh, because right now the people around the Seattle area and really around the country who are sending us samples from other parts of the country into Seattle for testing in our lab, um, they need us right now. Yeah. I read a, um, an article, I think it was back in 2017, some Chinese researchers had traced the uh, original SARS virus to a bat cave uh, somewhere in China, and predicted that a derivative of it would eventually emerge. And this is called, uh, what, SARS-2 or something, SARS-CoV-2? The, the one we have now is uh, yeah. SARS-Coronavirus-2, yes. So, I mean, w- did we get the heads up years ago? Was I guess what I ask is, was there any way to have nipped this in the bud? And if there was, can we do that before the next one emerges? We're so much better set up scientifically than we were when SARS-1 came out in 2003. Uh, our capabilities, for example, of sequencing the virus. You might remember a virus is built up of a bunch of nucleic acids. So everybody's heard of DNA. There's also RNA. And, and this virus happens to be built out of RNA. It's just a, the cousin of DNA. It has about 30,000 of these letters that make up its genome. It's quite, that makes it quite a big virus, actually. Um, so our Chinese colleagues were very quick at sequencing the virus very early after the first cases. 
So we knew a couple of things right then. We knew it was a coronavirus because of that. Um, we also knew what to do to start to make diagnostic tests. And that's when we began. As soon as that sequence came out, we started preparing to do testing. So you need that sequence to do it. And it's also allowed us to trace the infection. It looks like from one person to be infected to another person being infected um, takes on average about five days. It could be faster, it could be slower, but on average it's about five days between steps of the infection. Mm-hmm. And every 10 days the virus we, we say mutates, one of those letters changes. One letter out of 30,000 changes. So we sequence everything. Every positive that we find, we sequence. Mm-hmm. And then we compare it. And this is allowing us to trace the infection backwards. And right now, it looks like the Washington outbreak really came from a single case. Really? Very early on. Um, there may be a second one. It's a little bit uh, unclear right now, but the substantial majority of the cases are all clearly uh, genetically related. Um, and so... Ultimately, this is going to allow us to sort of figure out what happened. That'll all be after the fact. But that might help us understand for next time what happened, what might we have done to nip this in the bud. But this is an enormous just biological challenge that this one was really going to be hard to nip in the bud, even if we'd have known everything and jumped on it right from day one. So you might be able to find patient zero? Um, It's often hard to find the exact patient person. And if that person's ever found, they won't be publicly identified um, because they had no intention of, of being patient zero. And, right. and, and, and clearly, but, I mean, you, you could pin it down to a location or a, yeah, or, or so a we'll day? Probably, or... Yeah. So there's a very good chance we'll be able to pin it down to probably a range of days, which will be pretty short that the first mm-hmm. cases in the United States were thought to occur between these three days or something. And the first cases that were identified will, will have been here and here, for example. Um, and, and we'll understand which one of those sort of led to the bigger outbreaks and where that went. And You can tell which part of Wuhan it came from? Uh, which part of Wuhan? I don't know about that. Um, ideally, we would trace it all the way back to Wuhan. Yeah. And, and certainly our colleagues in China are trying to understand exactly where did it start there. And, and ultimately, what was, the, what was the first event? And that's what we really want to understand it's very clear if you look at the genetics, this is closely related to viruses from bats. Yeah. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean it came from a bat, but it's related to those. So if we can find how it jumped from bats into people or from something else into both bats and people, if we can figure that out, maybe practices could be changed, whether it's how food is handled or, or, or you know, cleanliness or close interactions with animals. If we can figure out what happened, maybe we can intervene. Wow. So how are things in the lab these days? You working 24-7 or um, what, we are, what's the workload? We are very, very busy. Amazingly enough, we have had the capacity to test for every sample that's gotten to our lab. We've been able to do. Uh, it seems like the backlog right now is actually getting samples to us. Getting, We've been trying to get the word out. We have capacity. Mm-hmm. We can have testing if people want if, if healthcare providers want to order testing, and I want to stress that the people do need right. to go through some sort of licensed healthcare provider, um, you can go onto the University of Washington Virology webpage, and there's a big button that explains everything about our test and how to get it ordered. And right now, testing is important because it's one of the major ways we can help understand yeah. what people need to do. So, so physicians don't need to be shy. If somebody presents with something that could be coronavirus, you have the capacity to test that sample. That's exactly right. And, um, you know, I've been in a lot of contact with the folks at the State Department of Health as well as University of Washington Medicine and really getting into this across. And if you look at the Department of Health guidelines, 
in big, bold letters at the top, it essentially says, not quite verbatim, but if you are a physician or other healthcare provider and suspect coronavirus, you can order testing. And then it goes through details about their opinion of when it's valid or not. But the judgment actually now is with the healthcare provider. And that's important to understand. All right. Good to know. Dr. Keith Jerome, professor and head of the virology department at the University of Washington's Department of Laboratory Medicine. Thank you very, Thank much. You very much for coming in. My pleasure. Remember that when there's a longer version of the interviews on Seattle's Morning News, you can usually find it right here in the original form, unconstrained by the limitations of a live broadcast. And you can subscribe so that when someone says, did you hear what was on Seattle's Morning News, you can say, not only that, I heard the part that wasn't on Seattle's Morning News. So my advice is to subscribe. And then when we talk to an author, a politician, an entrepreneur, an artist, a scientist, a teacher, a journalist, a celebrity, you'll hear every word. I'm Dave Ross. Thanks for tuning in.